0: You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG Bad Boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Pay.
2: To introduce Paul to the guests who might not know him, he is. A New England researcher out
1: of wait Vermont. Well, we're we're about five miles from the Vermont border. Oh, you're actually in New York. Yep. Yeah. You have a couple of books with the Monsters of the North Woods. Yeah, uh, Bigfoot Encounters New York and New England.
0: Yeah, and your yeah. Monsters of the Northwoods uh, book. That's is that even in print any longer?
1: No, no, that was back in uh, 1992, I believe.
0: Yeah, cuz I know but I was looking for a copy about 5 or 6 years ago and I just had a bear of a time trying to find one. Um and I finally got one. I think I paid a paid a pretty penny of it cuz for it cuz it's a, um you know, it's a must-have book I think, especially if you're from that part of the country. Um and then since then I've somehow tracked down or two or three others I think have fallen in my lap. So I guess that's a ah. lesson for me is don't try so hard.
1: <laughs> hey, yeah, you never underestimate a little bit of luck, huh?
0: <laughs> I suppose so. I'd rather be lucky than good any day.
1: You got yeah. it.
2: Yeah, Paul's not much older than us, but he's been in the game a lot longer. You've been looking into this since the mid-70s. you were what, 12 years old? You started investigating the A. Bear Road settings, those famous settings out of the Whitehall Police Department.
1: Right. That would have been back in, in uh, August of 76. And uh, we had a, a major incident that would be regarded as sort of a landmark type of sighting, uh, a sighting that everybody can sort of reference because it was such big news back then. And basically what happened is, is we had a couple of teenagers out on a, a rural road called Abear Road. And they saw something beside the road, they sped away, they brought a friend back, and then all three parked their truck and waited. And then they all saw this creature uh, out by a telephone pole, out by a bear road. So they sped away. They left about uh, sixty feet of black rubber in the road. Uh, went right to the police station in town. Back then, it was different. Uh, you used to, you didn't have to go through county. You would just uh, go down to the police station, and there'd be a dispatcher on duty. And that's what they did. And and they ended up uh, Whitehall police, the uh, uh, New York State deputy sheriff and the new york state troopers all responded to a bear road and over a course of about oh uh, pretty much a week long period from august 24th to september 1st of 76 we had multiple witnesses perhaps as many as as 12 to 14
0: that really put whitehall on the map as far as bigfoot mythology and lore goes you know and the history of the subject uh that permanently put whitehall on the map and even to this day the the whole town resonates with that sighting right
1: yeah that was that was one of those those real uh, uh interesting moments that uh, the town was sort of split we had uh, major news networks up here covering it, uh uh, you would have the reporters standing in the field talking about the sightings. Uh, there were witnesses that would talk off record, but wouldn't appear on camera. And really the town was sort of divided, you know, a, a, a good percentage of the town thought, ah, oh, this is just a, a hoax or something wrong. And the others knew that there was something else going on here. Now, what really uh, this thing is more layered than anything. and it sounds great that there's a, you know a terrific uh, witnesses that have sighted this creature you know over this uh, short flap of time. But it turns out that there was a whole uh, another element going on here that was underreported. And this had occurred during a major UFO flap in the region uh, in August of uh, nineteen seventy six. And it was uh, Shushan, Granville, uh, Hartford, all these surrounding regions all had this massive UFO flap going on at the time. And so this was all part of this, uh, I call it a paranormal outbreak. We just had all sorts of weird phenomena going on. We even had, uh, uh, it was a single report. We didn't have multiple reports of it, but we had a single report of of what you might term a thunderbird or a large... Uh, Prehistoric-looking bird at the time as well, so we had all this phenomena going on at once, and it was uh, really the talk of the town back then.
2: But with the but the thing that set apart the this Bigfoot on ABR Road was that was not there six police officers that said they saw it. Correct that like gave that some of them even gave their names to reporters.
1: Yeah, uh, you see, the initially we had the our original report of the three teenagers reporting it. And then the police departments all responded. And over the course of, you know, decades of research, certain people would come forward and then they would, you know, maybe publicly make a statement and then maybe off the record, make a statement. And when you start adding up the witnesses, we're well over, you know, uh, we're like into a dozen plus uh, potential witnesses, many of which were police officials. And the next night, what had happened is one of the brothers of the the initial teenagers, who was a Whitehall police officer, uh, went out to the the uh, the Bear road and, and was on the opposite side of the road and had a uh, sighting of his own with another law enforcement official as well. And then you uh, look at, uh, that whole report, that that whole incident that went on for a week or better. Uh, we also had another police report occur a few years later in 1982, and that was uh, if you were heading towards South Bay, just uh, north of Whitehall, uh, you would uh, you would uh, go out where Dan Gordon and another police officer at the time. Uh, this was in February of 1982. They were making a routine patrol, and they would just drive out to South Bay, turn around, and then come back into town. And it was about 4.30 in the morning, and they had what is probably the most common type of uh, sighting, and that was of a creature crossing the road in front of their cruiser. Well, Dan was my neighbor, and you know I went to school with Dan. He's one of the most honest people you'd, you'd ever want to meet. And so there was no question in my mind about uh, his sincerity. Plus, he had the confirmation of another police officer who was with him at the time. Well, they pulled over. He got out of the car, drew his weapon, tried to pursue, but the creature was long gone. Uh, they were both stunned. The other police officer had remained in the car, and you know they they were like, "Boy, that was something, wasn't it?" And he goes, "Yeah." And and you know they didn't talk about it for. 20 years. Now they talked to me off the record and, and some other researchers, but publicly they did not make a statement about it for 20 years. And so it was this dark secret. So we've got multiple police reports that have occurred in the town of Whitehall. So it sort of uh, uh, puts Whitehall in a, a, a different uh, perspective sometimes.
2: Yeah. When we went to film out there, we got to interview Dan Gordon. I remember. We filmed out there for Finding Bigfoot.
1: hmm Yeah, uh, uh, Dan had, uh, he never went public until uh, Doug Hijack came to town to shoot a, a documentary series called uh, Mysterious Encounters. And they were doing an episode called The Creature of Whitehall. Well, uh, Doug had set up, you know, you know and, and set up various interviews, and Dan decided to go out and meet him. And he agreed to talk with him, but he didn't want to go on camera, and then he agreed to go on camera, but he didn't want to give his name, and that's how it played out. So the next time uh, Doug Hijack did another production for the uh, History Channel uh, called Monster Quest, which was originally the uh, uh, premiere of that was Giganto, the special, and then Monster Quest sort of spawned from that, and he uh, he was interviewed for that special, and. Uh, uh, Dan, uh, he he said for the history team, I remember we were walking uh, up the road one day, and he said to me, You know, I want to take a polygraph. And I said, Dan, nobody's asking you to take a polygraph. He says, I want to. And I remember we had uh, set up for a Monster Quest episode a few years later, and that was him taking a polygraph test. And, you know, the, the polygrapher, who was a, a state polygraph expert, he said there was no deception whatsoever with Dan.
2: He passed away not several years ago. Is that, is that the same guy?
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, he, had, he had some heart issues. And that was one of the reasons, too, that he decided to come forward with his story because he, he wasn't in the best of health. Uh, and and uh, at, at the time that he came forward, I think it was uh, sort of he got this story out this, uh, this story that he couldn't tell publicly for over 20 years. And, you know, that's one of the things that, uh, I, that's one of the things that I'm, I'm really, uh, about is that people don't have to keep this as a, you know, dark secret that they can come forward with this. And so he's in good company.
2: Right. Yeah. I think yeah, because we, we got to meet him and then, I think he was – I remember he was really sincere, and then I don't know if we got to – I think he had a pass before we got to actually get him on on camera. I can't remember if he was on the show or not.
1: I I remember what happened is he was interviewed uh, when you you folks did a town hall for I think it was the Vermont – Episode.
0: I think that's uh, right. Yeah, he stood up at our town hall and right. spoke, but, but he had passed in between when we shot the Vermont episode and we did the Whitehall episode.
1: Right, right, and and then you had included a, a clip of him from the Vermont uh, episode for the New York show.
0: That's okay. right. Yeah, I remember that. That's correct.
2: Yeah, and those police when the police officers gave that description because it walked in front of that telephone pole and on, on ABR Road on that whatever cornfield or pasture whatever it was. Mm-hmm. We we'll filmed there. The telephone company was out there cutting down the poles. We pulled up and I'm like, that's the one. And they always tried to keep the cast away from the public because <laughs> mostly because of moneymaker. But uh remember they were there getting ready to chop down the pole. I'm like, that's the pole. And I ran over there and got them to hold off chopping down the pole until we could film it. And I, I prod out that number four that was on the pole of the little aluminum, like you know, you tack onto your garage for your address, or whatever. there was a four on it. And it was seven and a half feet off the ground, and that's how the police all measured the, how they uh, estimated the size of
1: that creature. And I still got that little uh, floor tag. That's right. That's right. In fact, uh, uh, Lauren has the—I uh, uh, went up and I cut a little piece off and sent it up to the museum up in, uh, you know, up in in uh, Lauren Coleman's museum in, in Maine. And so he's got a little exhibit up there of it. But, yeah, that that was uh, that was interesting. You know, it, there was nothing nefarious about it. It just so happened that they were moving a whole line of poles, and that was one of the poles that was slated for, you know, destruction. And so it was you guys actually, uh, your crew is the last person to film the telephone pole where the sighting took place.
2: Yeah, they talked ch- about the time we left.
1: Yep. Uh, uh, you you had you had filmed it just. I mean, it was the day you had filmed the day before, and then the day after it was gone.
0: Yep. And again, I'd rather be lucky than good any day.
1: You got it.
2: You got I was trying to convince. <laughs> I was trying to convince the foreman to leave it up, saying like it was a historical poll. You know, like don't don't jump down this. He's I gotta take them all down. It's so the contract. I said, just leave this one. This is important.
1: It was a it, it was a funny thing because. People came from all over the world. Uh, we had uh, Yowie researchers from Australia and 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 so forth, and, and they would come there to get their picture taken next to the pole. It was kind of a funny little landmark. Uh, now we've got other things that people can come to Whitehall, you know, when all this is, is over with, and and they can get their picture taken at things like uh, there's five different statues from around town. Uh, there's a statue at the soapstone uh, uh, store in town, a huge statue. Uh, there's another one that uh, the same artist, uh, uh, Stephen Meshtian had done for the Skeen Valley Country Club where Cliff Sparks had a sighting in 1975. And uh, there's a, a wooden one that was done downtown. And there's one done by Eric Miner that's uh, done at the one of the pizza places uh, so, I mean, th- there's all sorts of little uh, places you can get your photo taken now. But back then, the only place you could go was that telephone pole.
2: Yeah, you know, I, that, that's all, like, the statues and stuff. Like kind of kitschy pop culture stuff. is. I mean, that's fun and cool. But, I mean, I'm into going to the actual spots. I mean, I thought, the, I thought they should have left that pole. And then I don't know if they don't want that much traffic on the road. I mean, it's a small road. But they would have marked, like, it would be cool, like, when you went there, like, when you do, like, a, a tour, you know, like, have like a little science saying spot one. This is where the teenagers were parked. And then another little marker, like you could just be spray painted on the road. Like this is where the police were parked when they saw it. And
1: like, yeah, it, it would have been nice. Uh, uh, you know, even a, uh, some sort of a, uh, an official historical marker would have yeah. been nice, but, uh, you know, it, it was private property and, uh, someone else owns it now. And, and, you know, it, it's, that's just the way it went. <laughs> yeah.
2: I think I think people are gonna look back and just be like, you know, when the Sasquatch is officially recognized, going these important, you know, moments in Sasquatch, I guess you'd even call it almost prehistory or pre-discovery history, would are just so cool, you know, and it's like the PG film site. They get so great that the Bluff Creek project went in there and cleared it out so you can actually go to the actual spot and stand there and see the pathway. And there's a few there's a few spots like that were big monumental, like Bluff Creek where they got the tracks. Whitehall, that telephone pole, there's not a whole lot of like really big momentous things that were such huge parts of Bigfoot history.
1: Right, right. No, I I agree. It would have been been nice if they could have done that. One of the reasons that I did the legislation, I I wrote that up and we ended up passing it in both the village and the town of Whitehall uh, in honor of Professor Cook, uh, and part of that was to recognize these creatures. It was largely symbolic, but uh, it showed the history, the rich history we have of, of these creatures in this region. And, uh, y- you know, it's, it's nice to be able to embrace our own heritage and history. And uh, if people have a sighting, not to be able to be ashamed of it, but it can actually come forward and go, you know, that I saw that. And, you know, they're in, in such good company because uh, if you trace the history back, you can go all the way back to the Algonquin and the Iroquois, and there's legends of stone giants and giant men of the mountains and wendigos. And, uh, uh, y- you know, the, the Kakashi, the, the uh, Gugu that, that, that Samuel Champlain talked about in the 1600s. Yeah, you know, in the 1800s, it was always, uh, you know, wild men or, or uh, wild people or strange bears, uh, and the sightings just continued. It's such a a rich, traditional history, and, you know, for the skeptic who says there's nothing to it, that's fine. I understand the argument, but uh, it's important to study just from the point of view that this is part of our history. So, uh, for me, it's a win-win.
2: But, you know, I was going to ask you about that that you mentioned Professor Cook, Warren Cook. That was over. At, he was at Castleton State University. He was an anthropology professor, wasn't he? he he's the reason you went to that college, right?
1: Yes, uh, uh, I, I went to Castleton. Uh, it was Castleton State College back then. It's now Castleton University, and it, it's uh, it's only about uh, ten minutes from Whitehall. And I went to Castleton College because of Professor Cook, and Dr. Cook was a. Uh, this was a real heavyweight. Uh, academic who uh, he had been nominated for a Pulitzer for Latin American history for his uh, Yale work, which was a flood tide of empire. And he was one of the few professors that was, uh, you know, it it was pretty much him and and Grover Krantz and a few others back then uh, who were actually able to, you know, to go professionally and and put their reputation on the line to say that they think there was a reality to the Bigfoot phenomena. So it was very important. Uh, we, we set up uh, a, a study, a database that we could uh, study reports from the New York and Vermont area, and then it uh, spanned out into uh, other parts of the the uh, northeast. And at that time, these reports were very underreported. In fact, uh, when you looked at a, a book like John Green's uh, Sasquatch tapes Among Us, I think they had like uh, 11 sightings in New York and, you know, a few in Vermont, something like that. And then we were able to bring into it, you know, basically like a hundred sightings. So it just showed how much there was really going on in the Northeast that was underreported at the time. And Cook was instrumental in getting that established. In fact, the uh, uh, legislation that I passed that I wrote, and then then we ended up passing in Whitehall, was dedicated to Dr. Cook because back in the 80s, he actually contacted Madeleine Coonin, who was the governor of uh, Vermont at the time, and tried to get Sasquatch put on the endangered species list. And uh, they, they actually, uh, they had it before a panel, and they said that they thought the information was fascinating. And although they denied it, they encouraged him to continue his research.
0: Now, I kind of feel that uh, even to this day, the Northeast is highly underrepresented in the data set. I mean, yeah, you can go to the BFRO or a few other databases and uh, look up stuff from various states. But um, why why do you think that is, that um, people just don't think about that corner of the country as being viable Sasquatch habitat?
1: Well, I, I think for years and years, we associated uh, uh, Bigfoot with the Pacific Northwest and uh, maybe uh, you know Nepal and the Himalayas. But when you start looking at almost any part of the United States, uh, whether you're you're going to go into Momo in Missouri or the Falk Monster in Arkansas or, or whatever, everybody seems to have some sort of creature. And this seems to be a very consistent uh, traditional history. And for whatever reason, I think it was the Pacific Northwest seemed to be where everybody sort of put the creature at. When you saw the documentaries in the day, they kind of focused on that. And we just sort of underlooked, uh, overlooked uh, various other parts of the country. And that was one of the interesting things. When, when we had the sighting in Whitehall in 76, it really put an emphasis on, hey, what's going on here? And then you start looking into New York state and you find out there's a a flap area up in Lewiston. If you go into Vermont, you've got a flap area in Chittenden and uh, you go down in uh, just south of Albany, which you would think, oh, there can't be much down there. Well, you got Kinderhook, New York, down where, you know, uh, down by Chatham, New York, where, where Washington Irving wrote, uh, you know, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And it's very rural down there as well. And there's a creature down there called the Kinderhook creature that uh, Bruce Hallenbeck had researched and his family had encountered over the years. So uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it just didn't get attention until much later. And now it's, it's really very uh, uh, rewarding that we see so much attention given to it now.
0: Yeah, it really makes uh, Bigfoot um, uh, accessible. To almost anybody in in especially United States or North America, really, that you could probably find a place that's has sighting reports and a history within a few hour drive of anywhere you might live in this country. And you know, as far as the Pacific Northwest thing, I always kind of uh, make it akin to uh, you know the 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 victors of the war get to write the history. You know, and that's the that's the word that spreads about the history of a war, right? Um, whoever wins right. it gets to, gets to write their own propaganda about it. And really, when you look at the early days of Bigfoot's, all the researchers, and more importantly, all the uh, uh, the the best read authors we're all from the Pacific Northwest. And I think that has a lot to do with it. And there's a certain mystique and wildness of the Pacific Northwest and whatever else, but, uh, you know, New York is a giant state. There's some amazingly wild places, even Vermont, as small a state as it is. um, Vermont has amazing habitat and a lot of evidence that comes out of it.
1: Well, you know, I'll give you a a really good example. The Adirondacks, they used to do an advertisement on TV where they are put all these uh, large parks and they basically put their the the same uh, uh, mileage and stuff there is in those parks all in the Adirondacks. And what it shows is that it's such a a, a rugged and uh, such a primitive area. Uh, remember when the prisoners escaped, the famous Danimora, uh prison escape, uh, it took between two, uh, just over two weeks to get those prisoners back. And that was using all this advanced equipment. These were people that weren't wood smart, uh, and yet they really made crucial mistakes, which led to their capture. Uh, so, using all the technology that we had at our our, our feet, using all the the knowledge, uh, the uh, awareness, the news reports, all I remember we we had gone hiking while while they were um, while, while they were out. Uh, uh, escaped. And there were, you know, uh, posters put up all over the place as well. And yet it was their own mistakes that got them caught. And all that technology didn't amount for anything.
2: Yeah, well, that was like in LA about 15 years ago. A 500 pound orange Bengal tiger escaped in the valley in LA County, like in the suburbs. And it took them three weeks at the top 10 tracking teams in the state that did take care of like. You know, problem cougars and coyotes and bears and that sort of thing. When you're talking, about, you know, a county with 12 million people, this thing was in a three by four mile strip of of uh, you know, wo- kind of woodlands and houses interdispersed. Inter- interspersed, and it took them over three weeks to bag that tiger. And the reason they got because it was so hungry, it was standing at someone's back porch staring in the window at their dog. That, <laughs> that, was, it, that was the tiger it, out of its element. You know, it, it had been born in captivity out of its element, but it eluded. In a three by four miles, you know, square, you know, twelve square miles. It eluded the best teams and hundreds of other cops and everything. I mean, yeah, people don't realize how easy it is to escape man out there, especially for a, an animal that has night vision and acute senses and faster and stronger.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So, so Paul, we learned about how you, uh, first got into this thing with the Or oh, I, I don't know if that was your first, uh, experience with it, but that was what really, um, I, I guess, put you on the map, I guess, you know, because that was some of your earlier investigations. And I know you're a, an excruciatingly thorough investigator. Um, but you still are, are working on, on Bigfoot stuff nowadays. What, what, what has caught your attention over, uh, you know, the last few years that you'd like to share with us?
1: Well, uh, we, we continue to collect reports, and as a, a researcher, you know I I have I've done this for oh probably forty five years or so, and we just collect the information as accurately as possible. And you know when I I've seen some researchers that will collect a report and they'll leave details out because it doesn't fit. You really need to get every detail you can possibly get, even if it doesn't make sense at the time. Uh, put it in because it might mean something later. And we find this time and time again that uh, uh, this is a consistent pattern of reports by credible people. Uh, this isn't, you know, you can run across people that are happy to see see something or, you know, it's almost like a religious experience. Uh, you can run across people that this is a tragic experience. They did not want to see this and it's changed their perspective. It's changed their life. Dan Gordon was like that. He didn't wanna be known as the Bigfoot cop. This had a negative effect on his life. So it's reports like that that are very, um, it's just such a consistent pattern of sightings. Uh, For instance, uh, I was just looking at the recent report we had in January 5th, right here in Whitehall. Got a call from uh, a a fellow said that there was a a witness there and, and, uh, the woman brought me to the site along with her husband, and uh, he had been driving. She was uh, she was uh, in the pasture side, and she saw this creature. And she said it was down on all fours, and and it was sort of hiding and and lumbering along. And she said it had uh, well, I'll give you the description. She said the thing had long flowing hair, and the hair was clean and beautiful. It was glistening in the sunshine. Uh, they went right back to the spot. There was nothing there to explain it. Uh, she brought me right to the, the location. And we get sightings like this time and time again. And, uh, you know, we had a sighting a, a couple of years ago before the uh, festival we had. And it was a typical sighting, guy driving along at night at 10 o'clock. He, his buddy, had it was actually 10, 10 p.m. His buddy had uh, it broken down and he went over to get him. And I've known this guy for quite a few years and he's always been very credible. And he said something was stepping over the guardrail. And we tried to, to, you know, I couldn't even duplicate taking a step from the location. And so that sighting took place just a couple of years ago. Uh, And and this is just a consistent pattern of sightings that has uh, occurred from the Algonquin and the Iroquois right up to modern day. And it's credible. And I think we we just need to keep documenting and documenting. And, it, you know, one of the patterns that emerges that I didn't expect, quite honestly, is some of the stuff that uh, John Keel and researchers like uh, Brad Steiger had talked about back in the, the 60s and 70s. And they would talk about, uh, John Keel particularly, would talk about what he called window areas, where this phenomena seems to occur time and time again. And it wasn't just, you know, like a bear, it wasn't just the creature sightings. It might be a mix of UFO sightings and, and, uh, big bird sightings, uh, you know, Thunderbirds and so forth. And it seems to be manifestations from the same source phenomena at times. And I really didn't expect that. And, uh, some of the work that, uh, researchers like George Knapp has done with, uh, you know the Skinwalker Ranch and things are pretty fascinating things, and we might be on a different level of of what's really going on here. But as far as I'm concerned, take down the information as as accurately as 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 clear as possible because it might have a meaning later on.
0: Now, as far as documentation goes, um, I, I've I've met you a few times in person, and you know I consider you one of my my researcher friends, etc. But to this day, I haven't been to your house. Right, and um, everybody I've met who says uh, who who like who also knows you, we have a mutual mutual friends of ours. They all say, "Have you been to his house?" And I go, "No, I still haven't been over <laughs> there." And they all go, "Oh my gosh, you gotta go to his house. His library is ridiculous." And you know, you're talking to two. Yeah. Like, I don't know how much our audience would get into this, but you're talking to Cliff and Bob's and we've got formidable libraries. Each one of us, um, we're both rare book collectors, Bobo, even more so than I. Um, but t- I want to hear about your library. Uh, t- tell us <laughs> what, 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 what's some of the gems you have in there how, how do you organize it? Uh, like, you know, just tell me about it because so I can just fantasize about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you what you ever get back, uh, this way to the northeast just drop in uh, anytime. Oh I will. Uh, you Bobo anybody.
0: whether uh, you're home or not man, I'll break <laughs> it. I, I can't I've got, I have your address now so you're not safe. I, I want to see this thing.
1: Well I, I'll tell you what happened is is back in the you know my, my brother and I have, have always been in, investigating this. My brother would be termed more of a skeptic than uh, more so than than I would be. and but uh, we've always worked well together. when when he was in college, uh, he ha- worked for Art Tourist Book Service, which was uh, it was down in Stone Mountain, Georgia for a time. But at one point it was like in Scotia or, or Schenectady, New York. It was right here. And Bob worked there and, and he would get paid in books. So we would get all sorts of uh, paranormal books. And it was, a, it was a great service. And we just started this this library of uh, collecting books on uh, all sorts of things. I think I was doing a report the other day on uh, Peter Herkos, the psychic, and we had three or four of his books. And so, uh, the the library just grew and grew, and and uh, we just uh, we just keep every volume. We have it organized by it's organized in sections like uh, cryptozoology, and then uh, ufology, uh, space sciences, uh, uh, ancient mysteries, uh, the ancient Vermont stuff. The uh, uh, psychic phenomena, parapsychology, uh, you know, ghosts and hauntings, and and, and uh, other mysteries and so forth, and it just sort of kept. <laughs> you, you know how the libraries go; they just keep growing, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, so we, we've got it set up in, in that manner, so I, I can walk in there and pull out anything. You know, all I need is an author's name, and I can pull out the book. And and it's just become a great reference uh, reference uh, thing here. And of course, we we uh, you know some of the older stuff from the the '60s, uh, some of the Brad Steiger books, some of the John Keels. Uh, I mean, they're just uh, they're so much fun.
2: Do you happen to have a copy of "I Fought the Ape Man of uh, uh, Ape Canyon" by Fred Beck? I do not. I do That's not. One. I've been looking for that one for a while. It's impossible to find, but. So, anyways, your brother Bob. I know he's listed on, you know, it's Robert Bartholomew. You know, he co-wrote the books with you. I know, and you were twelve when you started doing these investigations. Was, was he the older brother, and he was he could drive, and you were tagging along? Was that how it started?
1: Uh, well, I we were we both were into this, uh, and, and I'll tell you what really happened in 1973. There was a major UFO flap, and it touched on the New York area, as well as other parts of the country. And we were both interested in the topics. So, uh, Bob was in college at the time and I, and I was, I was younger. And, uh, uh, so there'd be, uh, professors giving talks and things. And, and we just sort of would, would cover as much as we possibly could. Now he had a job as a radio, uh, uh announcer at WWSC in Glens Falls at one time. And I can remember we had a, a UFO flap going on in uh, in this region, and he would get the reports and then give them to me, and then I would contact the people, and we got uh, you know terrific firsthand information about this triangular object that was being sighted all over the Northeast back then, back in the 80s. So uh, that later on, uh, that same type of object was sighted in Westchester County and became known as the you know the uh, Westchester Wing. Uh, so whatever these objects were, we were able to track them. And then, of course, uh, once you're into UFOs and so forth, there's parapsychology. And so we just evolved into to studying all sorts of uh, paranormal phenomena. And we would go to conferences whenever we could. Uh, I remember meeting Lauren Coleman back in 1978 at Info, the, the International 14 Organization down in Washington, D.C. So... We would cover as much as we could for conferences and in research, and it's kind of like something I've done every day for all of my life.
2: I mean, when I started getting this, I remember always, you know, you'd hear Paul Bartholomew, Paul Bartholomew, but I never, I knew your brother's name on the books, but he's not really known like you are. Is he still actively involved?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and uh, uh, he's, right now, he's in New Zealand. And uh, he's a sociologist down there. And, uh, uh, you know, he, he covers, he's covered a lot of research, uh, a lot of things that, dealing with uh, panics and uh, uh, media scares and things of that nature.
2: Is he looking into the Moe Howe while he's down there?
1: Oh, sure, sure. Uh, is he, is he uh, back to you? Yeah, he, he uh, I, I'm in touch with him uh, every week or so and uh, uh he's he recently he was actually studying the uh, sonic uh, attacks in Cuba, and uh, yeah, he get an explanation for that. so uh, yeah, he has been all over the place
2: but while uh, while he's done in New Zealand, has he talked to any persons that have seen a Moe? for the listeners, the Moe House is the New Zealand version of a Bigfoot right? Been- has he reported anything like that to you since he's been down there? Like, Has he met anyone that said they saw one? or?
1: You know what? I, 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 I haven't heard him uh, uh, mention a, a witness there, talking to a witness, but obviously he knows of the, the legends down there.
2: Yeah, because I'm always interested. I've gotten a few reports from the 80s and a couple maybe. The, the most recent one I heard of was, gosh, it's been almost 20 years now, so it's just always interested what comes out of there because I'd love to go there because it's such a beautiful country.
1: It is. And, you know, uh, I didn't realize it, but uh, Sam Neal from, uh, you know, Jurassic Park, I guess he has a big vineyard in New Zealand. And uh, uh, Bob, before that, actually lived in Australia. So uh, he was quite familiar with the the Yowie reports and the Yahoo and the Devil's Devil. And, uh, you know, we, we've had uh, Paul Cropper and Tony Healy here in town a few times and, you know, great researchers. And uh, so, yeah, we, we, he's quite familiar and, and been all over that region.
2: That's funny. We Cliff and I met Tony Healy at Bluff Creek about 15 years ago. He had a flat tire. We got his tire fixed for him. Been out in the, we didn't know he was going to be there. We just ran into him. I was like, no, I've got his books. And I was like, no, way, Tony <laughs> Healy, the Australian Yari researcher out here in Bluff Creek, We he's got a flat tire. We came to the rescue for him.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it's t- amazing. I-
1: Yeah, Tony's a great guy, and 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 Paul Paul Cropper, just great person. And you know, uh, not only did they write some a couple of the uh, premier books on the Yowie, uh, the whole history of the 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 Yowie phenomenon in Australia, they also just recently did a book on Australian poltergeists, which is fascinating.
0: I had not heard that, actually. I haven't heard uh, much from either one of those guys for a few years now. So it's good to know that they're still active and uh, producing uh, uh, document, documentation.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, Paul goes goes all over the world uh, uh, researching poltergeist cases of late. I mean, uh, fascinating person and, uh, you know, uh, just such a, an honest and straightforward guy. Uh, a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
2: For sure. You know, I wanted to ask you. Um, Because Warren Cook was a big name back in the day that profession you went to go study under. Do you think he kind of got like kind of left out more because he was a proponent of the Marx films, which turned out, you know,
1: obviously were fake? Yeah, that that was an unfortunate thing. Uh, uh, I just uh, I never understood that. Uh, As far as academic wise, he was uh, uh, well established. But uh, yeah, the the Ivan marks. I never understood any of that. Uh, I thought it was always very hokey. But uh, you know, it it just is what it is. I suppose.
0: Yes, yeah. Yeah. It's. Yeah, it's terrible because I don't think hoaxers really yeah. understand the damage they do to the subject. And it's someone like uh, Ivan Marx; he was directly almost responsible for the Bosberg prints. You know, the the famous cripple foot footprints. Right. Um. Right. So that kind of casts his shadow over that. Um. The first two handprint casts that were ever obtained were from him as well, and uh. So they throw those into um, shadow. You know, they throw those into doubt. Um, although I tend to think that they're real, uh, based on some other obscure evidence that was gathered at the time that very few people are aware of, um, but I had doubts for years about that one until I saw photographs of the um, area they were obtained from. And, and then there were some things in there that I, I don't think Ivan Marks um, had the knowledge of to fake. Um, so I, I tend to think those are real. But uh, they do long-term lasting damage to the subject. And it's, you know, it's one thing that if you don't think Bigfoots are real at all, but this guy was trying to make – you know, trying to find other evidence and he was an actual woodsman. He should know better. Uh, I guess is the thing. So yeah. I think there's a certain amount of mental illness involved in in faking Bigfoot stuff, in my opinion.
2: And it causes damage to the researchers that, you know, believe them and put their, you know, say, hey, I believe this guy. Then it turns out they're a liar. It just makes the researchers look terrible too. And there's someone that that entrust that you know entrusted their reputation with what you're saying, and then you just shit all over them.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I agree, and uh, you know that that's why I I've been very fortunate in uh, in my uh, uh, career here that I've I've been able to to be around a lot of great people like uh, you know like uh, Cliff Sparks who had the sighting out on the golf course here uh, uh, some of the bear sightings uh, Dan Gordon uh, these were really uh, you know these were really reputable people who had absolutely everything to lose. And nothing to gain by coming forward, and and like I said, with with some of these witnesses, it's a life changer, and boy, that's really powerful stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, and I think you're 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 taking a really good tact with this whole thing. Is, is that your your job is to? It sounds to me, at least, um, the role you've chosen to take is um, I document like judgments are beyond, I may have them, I may not, but my my primary role here is to document, 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 and do the very best job I possibly can with that. Um, so in a way that kind of um, inoculates you against hoaxes because you're gonna document them too. And I think that's uh, yeah. another important thing. Um, you know, for example, in, in my own Bigfooting career, you know, I fell for the London tracks. I've been hoaxed. I think any big footer who's been around a few years probably has been hoaxed. You know, I fell for the London tracks. I thought they were real for a while until I figured out they weren't. Um, and but I but that and a lot of people say, well, gosh, Clive, oh, I'm so sorry that they're ho-. actually it's not that big of a deal. You're supposed to document these hoaxes you're supposed That's to right. uh, yeah do the best job you can documenting them and learn as much as you can from them and actually through the london hoax i learned probably more about real prints than i ever could have otherwise so it was a it was a fascinating uh, chapter in my career as well but um but at the same time people say oh you've been duped before so doesn't that say more about the liar than the person yeah. who believed the liar
2: yeah yeah I think and you're right. When sitting there lying, to you. I mean. But I'm talking more about the person that sits there, and I look back on the people that have like fooled me, you know. And I'm like, what a son of a bitch! They sat there and looked me right in the eye and lied to me and took advantage of my trusting nature, or whatever, or like put faith in them as human beings, and to sit there and just continually to, to 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 go. The, I mean, putting out fake tracks and you know, just kind of laughing, oh, I fooled that guy. But then to, you know, to be the guy sitting there going, I saw a thing walk over there and there's the tracks, so and then sit there and lie to your face, that's that's a special kind of psycho.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. like psychopath. I, like the definition, I think, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, of course, uh, um, but, but the definition of a psychopath is someone who doesn't see anyone but themselves. Like anybody else doesn't matter. They don't feel empathy. They don't feel compassion. They, they're actually physically unable to feel these sort of things towards other people. It's all about themselves. You know, uh, and I think that, that that's, that's why I really do think that, um, I, I don't understand why psychologists haven't jumped on this because uh, the whole, the whole Bigfoot thing, even if they don't think the animals are real, because there's so much to study here. Like, why would somebody right. go out and say these things, you know, that, that right there is a PhD pa- paper, you know, like, why does, why aren't the psychologists jumping on this?
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and there are a few that, that have talked to, they, they've done studies on, researchers as opposed to witnesses and that's interesting too uh so uh, yeah I, I agree i think it's a win-win and uh you know for the person that argues there's nothing to it it's whatever uh well it's important just from a sociological anthropological point of view so i mean this is a this is a fascinating topic it's it's uh, far-reaching implications uh you know, the, the recent stuff on television with the Skinwalker Ranch is about as fascinating as it gets. And, you know, I, I'm just, uh, I've always been enamored with this topic. And I can't imagine that there will be a time that I'm not.
0: No, no, you're a lifer. You're a lifer just like the, yeah. well, the many other people <laughs> out in the field, you know. <laughs> you're doomed.
2: Doomed. <laughs> For life. What's the latest things you had going, Paul? I know that in 2018 you cast a couple prints on the side of the road of a road crossing. setting. So, have you had anything since then? And
1: well, uh, we we had that sighting in uh, January uh, January 5th, uh, 2020. The the woman that that saw the creature with the long flowing hair. Uh, we get sightings like that, and uh, you know that they're not. I wouldn't call them frequently, but they're so consistent that it's it's. Uh, it's just that consistent pattern of sightings. That was the latest uh, sighting I had, visual sighting. But we get uh, the uh, vocalization reports as well, which are often, you know, they're a little more subjective, I suppose. But uh, we try to, I've been logging for years now uh, three main categories, and that is uh, eyewitness sighting, uh, track find, and uh, uh, vocalization reports. And we just have a consistent pattern of sightings that goes on here all the time. And it's rare that, you know, back in the day, if you went back to the 70s, uh, uh, early 70s to late 70s, these things would pop up in the papers. And now it's completely different. It's all reported on social media. And it's all, it's very rarely reported Like it used to be in in newspapers. You used to have news clip services that you used to go through, and there'd be a flap of uh, eight articles on a flap of sightings that occurred, and that's how you would find your information. Now it's very instant and it's almost all social media now.
0: Now, uh, do you think that helps or hurts? Uh,
1: That's an interesting point. Uh, I think it's just different. Uh, I think there's there's, uh, certain um, certain parts of it that are, are positive and certain parts that are negative. But uh, at the same time, it's just different the way things are reported now. Uh, I can remember spending an awful lot of time in archives and going through microfiche. And now that type of thing is just instant. And, uh, y- y- you know, it's just a different type of uh, reporting now. And, and yeah, y- you know, that there are some some definite advantages that you can get to a site or get to understand where there's a, a location much quicker. But, uh, you know, at the same time, you, you got to be on guard against uh, somebody that's not really reporting accurately or, or things like that as well. So, you, you know, it's uh six of one and half a dozen of the other. Yeah. I think it's, I think
2: it definitely, there's a lot of drawbacks, but I I, I think it's better because I mean, just look at how much more information we have now.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, the uh, uh, the amount of information at your fingertips is is uh, it used to take a long time to to get a weather report, something like that. Now it's just everything is just instant.
0: Yeah, but it also increases the amount of background noise too. So I, I don't I don't yeah. know if it's actually a time saver or not. Sometimes because you got to sift through all this nonsense to get to to yeah. anything of value.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're. It's a, It's an excellent point, and you know, it's a. It's a double-edged sword, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Then again, you're talking to somebody who's rather anti-social in general, talking about social media. So <laughs> I w- I'd like to start an anti-social media. You yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> Bobo and I go around the country and do speaking events and things like that. Now I don't really see you at these events so much. Is that just hard to get away from work or are you just not, not really into that sort of thing or, or what's the deal with that? How come I don't see you at these conferences and things a little bit more often than I would expect?
1: Oh, I, I do. Uh, we don't get away that much because, uh, I do have a full-time job and, and, uh, you know, family here and, and, uh, it's just uh, difficult to get away at times, but, uh, yeah, we we've done some conferences. We went down, you know, to, to a couple of the Ohio conferences, and and we've we've uh, given talks with the, you know, Peter Weimer and 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 so forth. So yeah, you know, I try to get away whenever I can. And uh, back in the day, we used to go to anything we could, whether it was the International 14 Organization or the Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained, anything we could we could get away for. Uh, so yeah, I, would like to go to more, it's just a matter of, uh, just work at this point. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it, it is a passion and it's not going to go anywhere, uh, that, that, uh, you know, I'm not going to all of a sudden stop researching. Uh, so if I'm not at a conference, it doesn't mean
0: I'm not still researching. <laughs> oh yeah. Of course not. Of course yeah. not. Yeah. What, what yeah. Well, take like it-
2: what takes to the most your time these days, Paul. I mean- I know
0: you're into all kinds of stuff. Is it? Is there?
2: You just get into Bigfoot when there's something pops up, or are you like are you more your time going to UFOs or paranormal or poltergeists, or what? What takes up your time when you put your when you're dedicating yourself to you know setting aside time to do something for the week or the month? You work. Is it Bigfoot or is it UFOs?
1: It it could be anything. Uh, we just uh, put together a an atlas. Uh, it's not out yet, uh, but uh, it's in the final stages. Of paranormal phenomena in the in the Northeast here,
0: and wow,
1: it's uh, you you know, you're dealing with all sorts of phenomena from poltergeist phenomena to uh, UFO outbreaks to uh, creature phenomena. Uh, Whether you're dealing with catamount reports or thunderbirds, uh, it's sort of a a whole. uh, It's very straightforward written uh atlas I, I guess you would call it on paranormal phenomena in the northeast so that'll be the next thing to to emerge hopefully within the next couple months hopefully when when everything uh sort of uh, comes back to a new normal here
2: but bigfoot's your first love still right
1: uh it, it all is uh, uh yeah uh, bigfoot will always be special because it was right here in Whitehall. But you know uh, another aspect of that sighting that took place on a bear back in '76 was that we had the all the police reports. But the UFO phenomena that occurred that same week, in fact, it was one of the most bizarre aspects of of the whole thing. Uh, the police dispatcher on duty was Bob Martell. And back then, you just drove into the police station and walked in, and you talked to the guy. It was one of the great jobs to have. You'd be there overnight watching TV most of the time.
2: Huh.
1: And, and uh, uh, Bob was in there, and he told me the story. He said it was within a week of the A Bear Road incident, uh, either before or prior. He wasn't sure which. But he said within a week, there was a UFO landing on 2nd uh, Avenue in Whitehall. Now that's absurd because you're talking about houses with small yards and I mean, houses everywhere. And I, I said, are you sure? And he says, yeah, he said uh, he and, and uh, Wilfred Goslin were there and they, they took a call from the woman and they were only two streets away. So they jumped in the car and drove over. And when they got there, the woman said that whatever it was just took off. and. Bob Martell said he walked over to the location and there was a circular patch of matted down grass where uh, th- the grass had been pressed down where something had, had landed and taken off. And it's just such a weird location for something like that to happen. And yet it was right around the time of the, the creature outbreak as well. And Bob said he leaned down and he could feel the heat still coming off of the of the rounded patch. Well, it turns out that in that 73 UFO flap that I had talked about, there was a landing of something at the La Cabana restaurant on Glen Lake, New York. And what had happened is that there's a famous photo of Jack Bergeron, who was the former owner, and he's pointing to these these two concentric circles in the the uh, dirt parking lot of the La Cabana restaurant. Well, it turns out that it was uh, December of 1973 and something had landed there people had heard the noise and but but no one's witnessed it and whatever it was left these two concentric circles it threw dirt against the door so much so that they had to get a shovel and actually shovel some of the dirt away turns out that the hot water taps ran cold and the cold water taps ran hot for a short time uh, one theory is that perhaps the electromagnetic uh, field had had uh, uh, caused a, a reversal of the polarities. Uh, no one really knows why that happened, but whatever happened, it was beyond just somebody trying to hoax something. It w- there was an actual physical effect that took place that no one expected. And it's incidents like that that are so fascinating. And I don't know if we'll ever understand exactly what happened at the La Cabana back then, but it was during a major UFO flap. And sure enough, we had that same phenomena occur during the Bear Road sightings. How, how big were those circles they found? I believe they were about 20 feet.
0: Now, now, is this kind of a. Now, I haven't read the John Keel books in general. Um, But, but, but what I gather from my friends who have, and talking about him, part of his whole shtick is that, uh, first of all, the, it's hard to study a phenomenon that might be aware of you. Um, and and there's also another side of it, which is, uh, um, when weirdness happens, weirdness erupts all around. And it's not usually not just an isolated thing. There's a lot of weird stuff going on. Am I right in that? Or how would you sum up? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And uh, uh, people like uh, John Keel and Brad Steiger were way ahead of the curve. I I was very fortunate to uh, uh, work with Brad Steiger on on a couple of books and and, uh, terrific guy. We lost him two years ago. And uh, I mean, he was just a legend when it came to any type of the paranormal and he noted this back in the 60s and it took me, you know, 40 years to catch up to uh, how he, he he was thinking and he's right and and what John Keel would say is that these different phenomena are different manifestations from the same source phenomena and it actually sounds very similar to some of the Skinwalker Ranch stuff with the, uh, you know, George Knapp and so forth. So I, I noted this for years, but never really had the full appreciation for it. I have an extreme appreciation for it right now after I've seen it duplicated time and time again. And, uh, you know, when you start to look at the abe Road case, you say, great, Bigfoot sighting, and then you just start peeling the layers away. And there's more going on there. And you know, it's it's my job as a researcher, I'm not drawing. Uh, conclusions or parallels. I'm just simply laying out the information as it's evolved. And, you know, what was really interesting when uh, uh, Seth uh, Breedlove came up to to shoot a documentary on Bear Road, uh, he found out the same thing, that there were multiple uh, things going on. And, and actually, he did a documentary as well on uh, with some of the Stan Gordon's research in Pennsylvania, which I think is is sort of along the same lines
0: yeah yeah sans sans into all sorts of weird stuff, and I love it because of that. you know he's just like nothing's off limits i'm just, I'm looking into everything that crosses my desk, you know
1: that i I think that's experience and uh you know I got a great deal of respect for you know the people like keel and, and steiger and and Stan Gordon uh, they they're seeing more that's going on here, and it's more than the media ever paints. It's more than you'll get in a one newspaper article. And it it seems like this phenomena is often layered, and it's much more sophisticated than we want it to be. And it's annoying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Well, Well, some of my favorite uh, people, let alone topics, annoy me. So uh, I'm right there with you.
2: (laughs) Paul. Paul, I know you've never seen a Bigfoot, but have you ever seen any cryptid or paranormal phenomena yourself?
1: I haven't. I haven't. I, I may have been close on one occasion, but uh, my uh, a standard for uh, uh, credibility for, for seeing something, I have to be. If I'm not sure if I saw it or not, then I didn't see it. I, I think the, you, you, when you see a Bigfoot, uh, uh, a Sasquatch, uh, uh, something that's very unusual in the sky, when you see something like that, it really affects you. And... If somebody's kind of wishy-washy about it, I'm a little hesitant. You know, I'll take down the information, but I'm not as convinced. When they've really seen something, it's a life changer.
2: How many? How much? How many pages of notes can you guess that you've taken of all all your different researching? Bigfoot, UFO. You must have just volumes.
1: Oh, we we've got uh, oh, probably ten filing cabinets in. Huh. Uh, Uh, based on on newspaper reports, based on uh, personal notes, investigations. Uh, Like I said, the the main library here, if you ever, if you folks ever get here, uh, you know, get to New York, definitely drop in and and I'll I'll show you. We've just collected it over the years. And, you know, some people have gotten into the subject and then they've gotten out of it and they, they might just drop their research off with us. And so it's, it's just a collection of phenomena that is absolutely fascinating when you start to peel away the layers. And there's if I had one thing that I would conclude at this point, it's that there's a lot more going on here than often seems.
0: It kind of comes back to not only is, uh, the, the universe or world, the world, or however big your situation is, it kind of comes back to the idea that like, not only is the universe weirder than you think it's actually weirder than you can think.
1: Yeah. Great quote. It's, uh, absolutely. Couldn't agree more.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, well, Paul Bartholomew, thank you so much for joining us. And again, if people want to check him out, He's got Monsters of the Northwoods. and then was it Bigfoot reports of New York and New England? Is that the title? Uh,
1: yeah, uh, Bigfoot encounters in New York and New England. And uh, I really enjoyed the conversation here, folks.
0: Yeah, and you have something new coming out in the next couple of months as well. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that as well. Uh, when that comes out, be sure to tell us about it. We can um, put it on our social media and help you out however we can. Okay. I appreciate it very much. Thank you know, you. we're all we're all in this together. We're all friends, and um, we all want to help each other. So. Anything we can do.
1: Absolutely. You folks get to the Northeast here. You uh, look me up. All right, we will.
0: Thanks okay. a lot, Paul. Really appreciate the conversation and your time, man.
1: Thank you. Uh, you guys take care.
0: All right, okay. take it easy.
1: Yeah, Paul Bartholomew, that guy's awesome.
0: Yeah, super cool guy. Fantastic researcher. Um, he's a legend. I mean, he really is a legend.
2: We travel around the country. street so see you know, people all around the country, but... You know, people we mainly are with are West Coast. We're kind of a little West Coast-centric. I was thinking, like, who's on the East Coast? And I was thinking, Lauren, Paul. we
0: got to get Lauren Coleman on here, too. Oh yeah. I'm sure Lauren would be happy to do it. He's been so helpful to me with the museum and yeah. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And you know, another thing about, uh, having people like Paul is that the the new generation of Bigfooters that kind of came on board with finding Bigfoot, um, they deserve to be exposed to, uh, the history like, uh, like Paul has been gathering for decades. Um, finding Bigfoot wasn't the birth of Bigfoot and a lot of people weren't aware of it before that show. Um, And I kind of feel like it's our duty in a way to uh, expose those people to the people whose shoulders we're standing upon.
2: Right. Like the people 20 and under, for a lot of them, Bigfoot did start with our show. I mean, it started 10 years ago about.
0: Yeah. At least our awareness of it. So, I mean, we're we're really taking the role of educators here to show the rich history and the fantastic researchers that came before us. Um, We wouldn't be where we are today without them. No, we certainly wouldn't. I I appreciate those guys so much. I mean – I'm
2: so disorganized and having 10 filing cabinets, I'd, I'd blow my brains out if I had to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wonder if you can find stuff in there. Like if, you, you know, if you're one of those bad professors and they're just digging through stacks and it's in here somewhere. You know, you always wonder when the guys have that much material, can they find stuff?
0: I, I, I don't know. I don't even know. how I, have so, I struggle with it every day to try to organize the stuff that I have lying around in my collection. I don't know. How do you even begin to organize without all these cross references? And I don't know. It's ridiculous. And it's somebody like Paul. He obviously is very left brained. You know, he's very organized in general. He has to be, uh, that's part of the reason I'd love to see his collection. Like how in the world do you organize all this stuff?
2: Well, when you talk to Paul and just seeing how his mind works, I'm sure he's got it pretty, pretty organized. Yeah. Yeah. I would think so. You'd have to, you'd have to cool cliff. Well, um, I guess that's it for me this week. Anything new with you?
0: Not really, man, just doing online orders and doing all that stuff, trying to keep the museum afloat through the plague. But uh, but again, hopefully by the time our listeners hear this plague maybe is over or something. We'll see.
2: Right, right. Okay, well, cool, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in. And all those listeners we just picked up from appearing on Sasquatch Chronicles, thanks to Wes being so generous to have us on. Welcome to you all, too. And uh, I guess until next week, keep it squatchy.